You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the Gracious, the Merciful, welcome back, or uh, welcome if you're new here to uh, the breakfast show here on The Voice of Islam. If you are new here, this is a show where we dis- uh, discuss secular um, and uh, religious matters concerning current affairs. Uh, we look at what's been going on in the news as well, and typically, what's uh, what's the latest um, in in today's world? Essentially, uh, we will be covering uh, three segments, um, uh, as is our as has become our norm. Usually, it was two segments we used to look at, but uh, the three segments we are looking at today are common viruses um, could trigger uh, Alzheimer's disease. Uh, We're also looking at the impact of a lack of care for climate change and also the link between frequent naps and high blood pressure. Um, So all of those will be covering uh, all the way from uh, now uh, 7.10 all the way till 9 uh, o'clock, God willing. Uh, I am also joined by uh, another co-presenter in uh, summer uh, and uh, it will be great to have his opinion on these things as well. Um, Samar, are you with us? Yes, yes, assalamualaikum. How are you, Bajir? Wa alaikum salam. Uh, I'm very well, alhamdulillah. Uh, I have heard um, you yourself are not too well and you're uh, uh, obviously presenting remotely. So I wanted to ask, how is your health? Um, is yeah, no, no, not not too bad, uh, by the grace of all of you. I, I can't complain. Um, I, I'm not able to, to come into the studio mm. and present from there. But um, but yeah, it's, I'm, I'm not too bad, and I, and I look forward to presenting with you remotely today. Yeah, uh, God willing, uh, we'll we'll both be able to make it through through this show <laughs> in one piece. Um, so I think um, to start off with, um, as we usually do, we'll uh, look at the weather, um, and you know the weather has changed quite a bit, uh, as as it always does. Um, so just looking at the last week, you know, we went through a little heat wave. It was all, um, you know, 30 plus pretty much um, until until about yesterday. Um, you know, yesterday was the first day it rained uh, in, in as long as I can remember, maybe in about, uh, you know, two or three weeks. And um, that made it really humid, actually, um, which was not uh, a very nice uh, experience to have. But, you know, looking forward... Um, you know, uh, at what is going on in the weather, um, uh, to look at the temperatures, first of all. Um, the temperatures are going to fall um, back to about uh, steady 25, um, 22 degrees. So uh, in between that range is what we can expect um, pretty much all week. Um, is That's what it's going to stay at. The rain is going to uh, be with us on uh, Wednesday as well, as well as today, and um, Sunday uh, as well. Um, and then, you know, after that uh, remains to be seen. Um, but to look at uh, the transcript of the weather, today it will be mainly cloudy with the odd shower in the morning. Showers will become increasingly frequent and sharp as the day progresses with a few rumbles of thunder likely in the afternoon, uh, and tonight will be mostly cloudy, with a few lingering showers during the early hours, 
further he- heavy and uh, thundery showers will push through from the south, but it should turn a little drier by dawn as well. Um, the outlook for tomorrow, uh, Wednesday morning, uh, there will be variable cloud and odd sharp shower through the day. Further heavy showers will drift across the west, bringing the risk of thunder as well. Uh, and then the outlook for Thursday to Saturday. Thursday will be mainly dry with patchy cloud and sunny spells. However, the odd shower cannot be ruled out, especially into the evening. Uh, a slightly warmer day. Uh, Friday will see any morning showers soon clear away, turning dry with extensive sh- uh, sunshine developing for the rest of the day. Uh, Saturday looks to be another largely dry and fine day with just some patchy cloud around as well. Um, and that is uh, the outlook for uh, for the weather from uh, today all the way to Saturday. Um, but, you know, moving straight on into the news, uh, Brother Summer, has anything just outstanding caught your eye in the last week or so? Uh, yes, I mean, there, there are a few things. Um, if, we, if we look at the uh, newspaper headlines as well, the new COVID jab, uh, for autumn, the the Heathrow uh, chaos that we've seen as well, mm. um, there has been a fair bit of uh, um, interesting things that we've seen in the news. Um, if we if we, if you go through them, and then we can actually speak about one or two of them, uh, which have caught our, our, our eye as well. Um, if we go to the Eye newspaper, uh, it reports uh, on the UK becoming the first country in the world to authorize a new COVID vaccine targeted uh, at both the original COVID virus and the newer Omicron uh, variant. The paper notes the vaccine approval comes after concerns a damaging COVID wave uh, could hit in the autumn, delaying NHS uh, efforts to cut uh, waiting times and tackle the backlog caused by lockdowns. Um, If we go to the Times, it also leads with the new Moderna vaccine and reports all over 50s are likely to be offered the jab as a part of a booster campaign due to begin within a month. The Times says it equates to half the population now being urged to have a fourth vaccination. It reports that uh, uh, the health chiefs see another round of COVID jabs as crucial to minimizing pressure on the NHS. Um, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? It's just, it, it, it's something that we are definitely living with now, and mm. um, and uh, it, it seems as if every couple of months or so uh, there will be uh, another another booster jab, if you, if that's what you want to call it, to to keep us going uh, and to keep us safe as well. Um, especially as uh, it's difficult for the NHS to 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 look after so many people as well and so many waves of people mm. coming in with uh, with uh, testing positive as well, isn't it? Um, if we go to the Telegraph, it writes that the Royal Navy is planning to relinquish its role in charge of uh, dealing with migrants crossing illegally to the UK on 31st January next year. Um, it comes four months after Boris Johnson brought in the first Navy vessels to patrol the channel. The report, uh, the paper reports, government sources say the Royal Navy is planning to hand back control to the border force uh, MPs have a complaint policing the have complained policing uh, the channel to attend it would be maybe into a super taxi service for migrants it adds 
um, quote-unquote, air chaos to hit half-term, headlines the uh, Daily Mail as it reports London's Heathrow Airport has extended its uh, passenger cap to the end of October. It means the airport will not lift its limit on the number of passengers flying from the airport due to staff shortages. The paper says it means up to uh, 1 million seats could be axed from airline schedule. <clears throat> Conservative leadership contender Liz Truss says she will reject Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon's demand for another Scottish independence vote. The paper adds Ms. Truss's campaign to become Prime Minister was helped by uh, polls putting her four points ahead of Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer uh, as the best person to lead the country. Um, ministers are considered uh, considering cutting redundancy pay for civil servants, which uh, would uh, coincide with the plan to cut 91,000 Whitehall jobs, The Guardian reports. The paper says the move sets up a bitter confrontation um, that uh, unions warned may lead to legal and industrial action. A consultation uh, document says that changes to the redundancy payment would create significant savings on the cost of exits. A dying mother has uh, is for, is is foregoing um, out with her two children because she can't afford them due to the cost of energy bills. The paper reports. Terry Prescott tells the paper the bills are robbing them of happy times. The Metro is among the newspapers to report on the first day of trial of Manchester City footballer Benjamin Mendy. He and his co-defendant, Lewis Saha, um, are accused of rape. Both men deny all charges against him and say the encounters were consensual. The Sun shows a picture of Mr. Mendy outside Chester Crown Court. It reports the prosecution alleges some of the alleged uh, victims uh, believe they uh, they were locked in rooms while the claimed abuse happened. The Daily Star carries a quote from Prosecutor Timothy Cray QC opening the prosecution's case in the trial. The Financial Times lead uh, leads on China cutting a crucial lending rate in a bid to boost growth amid repeated COVID lockdowns and a housing sector in freefall in the country. The paper explains the cut to the medium-term lending rate highlights deepening anxiety in Beijing as it tries to com- combat a decline in consumer demand triggered by its zero-COVID policy. Cash-strapped property developers are and slowing global growth. So these are um, a few of the headlines that you can see in today's newspaper. Uh, quite a few, uh, quite a variety of different um, articles, different uh, headlines that we could see over here. Um, she, which which one has caught uh, your eye the most? Yeah, so um, as you said yourself, you know, there's uh, many just flying about. Um, usually, uh, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, they've been uh, very focused on sort of one subject, but this is um, this is very well spread out. Um, in terms of the headlines. Um, it does seem that um, there's uh, nothing really that is uh, uh, quite outstanding in this regard. But uh, if we go into uh, the deeper uh, sources uh, and the full-on articles, 
we see um, quite a few interesting uh, things. Um, one which I'd like to talk about, um, which has caught my eye, is um, uh, perhaps uh, you may remember this or uh, perhaps not, but um, uh, there's a, an article about Sachin Littlefeather. Uh, Oscars apologizes to actress after 50 years. Um, the Oscars has apologized to Sachin Littlefeather, a Native American woman booed off stage nearly 50 years ago. The activist and actress appeared on live TV in 1973 to refuse an Oscar that Marlon Brando won for The Godfather. Uh, Brando uh, rejected the Best Actor Award because of misrepresentation of Native Americans by the US film industry and sent Littlefeather in his place. The Academy said Littlefeather endured unwarranted and unjustified abuse following her brief speech. Uh, I never thought I'd live to see the day I would be hearing this, she told The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, then she was uh, 26. Uh, she was heckled and shunned by the entertainment industry following her speech at the awards. Her speech was, organisers said, the first political statement at the televised ceremony, beginning a trend which continues to this day. Introducing herself on behalf of Brando, who wrote a very long speech, she briefly told the audience that he uh, very regretfully cannot accept this very generous award. And the reason uh, for this being the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry and on television in movie reruns, and also with recent happenings at Wounded Knee, she said in reference to a violent standoff with federal agents at a site of significant importance to the Seal people. She was met with boos and some cheers from the audience. In 2020, Littlefeather told the BBC that straight after the speech, she had to leave the stage with two security guards, um, but she added it was a very good thing as actor John Wayne was backstage um, and she said he was furious with Marlon and furious with me and wanted to pull her off stage himself. Um, so, you know, the reason that is uh, important is, um, you know, because that really should have um, been, the apology should have been um, given out 50 years ago rather than 50 years later. And it, it kind of just goes to show, um, you know, what what the mindset of, uh, the people then were, um, and you know how it's changed since then. Um, you know we see uh, it's reminiscent. Um, you know, sort of art reflects itself in this year as well with Will Smith um, and his incident at the Oscars as well. Um, and we see generally it's becoming more of a rather than an award ceremony. It's becoming a sort of. Uh, a, a drama, if you like, uh, brother Summer. What's your what's your opinion on this? If yes, no, I I agree with you, and uh, um, I mean we we have seen that uh, things like this are, are taking place quite regularly now. Uh, one one thing that I do um, like about this though is that uh, um, is that when when people come to to the stage and deliver a speech, sometimes. They do uh, speak about positive things as well. Uh, for instance, I remember I think it was a couple of years ago, maybe two years ago or something, mm. uh, when Leonardo DiCaprio uh, got uh, got an award. He received an award. He was actually speaking, I think, about uh, climate change um, and and global warming and other such things. Mm. Uh, so it just goes to show that when 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 you are in a position to to speak and you have a following, 
um, then we do need to make sh- make use, make proper use um, of that as well, of that stage, of that uh, um, that piece of fame mm-hmm. that we have. So if you are in a position in which you have, uh, let's say, so many people following you and um, uh, and and they 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 some people even go to the extent of worshiping uh, mm. their idols, isn't it? Mm. Um, obviously, I mean that's a separate uh, discussion in itself, mm. anyway. But uh, when it when it comes to this, when you are in a position uh, in which you have uh, a following, then we need to make proper use of that. Uh, and what I mean by that is not just giving off uh, an example um, for for people to follow, which is a, a negative example, but rather it should be uh, positive, it should be something which will be useful, um, and it should be to educate others as well. Hmm. Uh, was there anything else that uh, captured your eye as well in the news? I, I was looking through a few of the other articles uh, as well within the, the, the newspapers rather than just the headlines. Mm. But uh, I, I think I think that was it for me. I didn't really come across anything which was uh, very uh, eye, eye, eye-catching. Yeah, it has been it has been a slow week. I think this week. Um, yeah. But just a quick uh, date and time check for you. It is uh, Tuesday, the sixteenth of August, twenty twenty-two. The time has just turned uh, twenty-seven past seven. Um, and you know, here at the breakfast show, we do discuss history sometimes. So uh, let's take a glance back into history. What happened on August the sixteenth in history? In eighteen ninety six, gold was first discovered in Klondike, found at Bonanza Creek in the Yukon, uh, Canada, by George Carmack. In nineteen thirty, British Empire Games opened in Hamilton, Canada. Uh, in nineteen forty five. Uh, uh, Puyi, the last Chinese emperor and ruler of Man- uh, Manchukuo, is captured by Soviet troops. In 1946 uh, is uh, the infamous Direct Action Day. Widespread riots erupt in Calcutta between Muslims and Hindus over whether uh, Pakistan should be a separate state, killing over 4,000 and leaving 100,000 homeless. And uh, 20 t- in 2012, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange is granted political asylum by Ecuador. And we also have, um, in 2008, Jamaican sprinter Usain Bolt sets new world record of 9.69 seconds to win the coveted 100-meter gold medal at the Beijing uh, 2008 Summer Olympics. Um, But you can also call us on 028-687-7878 uh, that's 0286877878 for any questions, uh, comments or queries. Or um, maybe you have something you found uh, that you want to discuss in the news or something like that. Um, but you can also uh, tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. That's at Voice of Islam UK. Um, we will be taking a short uh, a very brief break uh, and we will return with our first segment um after this. Writings of the Promised Messiah, Salam. On one occasion, I saw Baba Nanak in a dream in which he declared himself a Muslim. I also saw a Hindu drinking from his fountain, and I said to the Hindu, The water of this fountain is not clear. Drink from our fountain. This was thirty years ago, and I related my dream to several Hindus and I was certain that confirmation of this would become available in due course. 
Accordingly, after some years, this dream was fulfilled very clearly. Three hundred years after the death of Baba Nanak, we found access to his robe, which proves clearly that he was a Muslim. This robe, which is a kind of outer covering, is preserved with great reverence as a relic at Dera Baba Nanak, District Gudaspur, in the custody of his descendants. It should be remembered that I have seen Baba Nanak in my visions twice and that he confessed that he had obtained illumination from the same light of Islam. I consider uttering of nonsense and falsehood like devouring carrion. I affirm only that which I have seen. That is why I hold Baba Nanak in honor, for I know that he drank from the same fountain from which we drink. And God knows that I talk out of the knowledge that he has bestowed upon me. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Uh, welcome back uh, to the breakfast show. Um, just before the break, we were talking about the news, what's been happening in the news, the weather, and uh, what's been going on in history as well. Um, and now we're moving on to our first segment of the day. Um, which, to remind you, was common viruses which could trigger uh, Alzheimer's uh, disease. Um, so, um, you know, the gist of the story is that Alzheimer's starts in the early months or years as forgetfulness uh, that is common in older uh, age. But what causes this disease still remains a mystery. Um, you know, to start off with, what is Alzheimer's disease and what are the symptoms? Uh, Alzheimer's disease is a progressive neurological disorder that causes the brain to shrink, uh, which is known as uh, atrophy, and brain cells to die. Alzheimer's disease is the most common cause of dementia, a continuous decline in thinking, behavioural and social skills that affects a person's ability to function independently. During the moderate stage of uh, Alzheimer's disease, more intensive supervision and care become necessary. Uh, which can be which can be difficult for family and friends. Symptoms during this stage may include increased memory loss and confusion, um, the inability to learn new things, a difficulty with language and problems with reading, writing and working with numbers, uh, difficulty organising thoughts and thinking logically, uh, shortened attention span and problems coping with new situations. Um, do you know there was an article... Uh, as well, that was published, um, brother Summer. Um, I, I believe, uh, um, you know, we were looking at it, uh, before the show. But could you, yeah, uh, briefly just uh, summarize that, please? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so basically, what the article was uh, was saying is that Alzheimer's disease can begin almost uh, imperceptibly, um, often masquerading in the early months. Uh, or years as forgiveness, like you mentioned earlier as well, that is common in older age. Um, the cause behind Alzheimer's disease is still a mystery, like you mentioned earlier as well. Researchers at uh, Tufts University and the Oxford uh, University of Oxford 
is a 3D human tissue tissue culture model uh, mimicking the brain. Um, have shown that varicella uh, resistor virus is VZV, um, which commonly causes chickenpox and shingles, may activate herpes simplex HSV, uh, which is of course another common virus, to set in motion the early stages of Alzheimer's disease. Um, to better understand the cause and effect relationship between the viruses um, and Alzheimer's disease, the Tufts researchers recreated brain-like environments in small six-millimeter wide donut-shaped sponges made of silk protein and collagen. Uh, they populated in the, the popu- they populated the sponges uh, with neural stem cells that grow and become functional neurons capable of uh, passing signals to each other in a network, um, just as they do in the brain. Some of the stem cells uh, also form glial cells, which uh, are typically found in the brain um, and help keep the neurons alive and functioning as well. Um, you know, we can discuss the cause and effect uh, relationship between the viruses and Alzheimer's disease as well. You know, there's uh, the theory that an infection might cause Alzheimer's, um, which has been around for decades in neuroscience research as well, um, which is... Uh, Quite an interesting theory, isn't it? Um, but the majority of Alzheimer's researchers, backed by a huge volume of evidence, think instead that the key culprits are sticky molecules in the brain called uh, amyloids. Amyloids clump into plaques and cause inflammation, uh, killing neurons. Uh, researchers hoping to test the infection hypothesis have gone hunting for microbes in thousands of post-mortem brains from pe- uh, people with Alzheimer's, uh, and in many, they have found them. But these studies only show correlations which may have uh, explanations that have nothing to do with mechanisms, says Distrupa. R- uh, Ruth uh, Itsaki, uh, a biophysicist, bristles at such criticisms. Um, she thinks that the presence of microbes in the brain must indicate a role for them, and that she uh, and others think that they have good evidence that viruses are linchpin in uh, Alzheimer's um, but as usual as said before we do look at the secular and religious uh, side of things as well uh, Brother Summer, would you like to lead us on the Islamic perspective yeah sure um, one thing which uh, which we always mention uh, whenever there's reference to any diseases or any illnesses or any problems of that sort um, is what the Holy Prophet Muhammad in the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him actually said uh, in regards to this, and he said that there is no disease that Allah has created, except that he also has created its treatment. Uh, so it's very important to always keep in, uh, keep in mind that although we see a, a variety of different illnesses, of different diseases and other such things, um, there will come a time <clears throat> when, we, we, when we will understand these things in a far better way than we currently do. Um, and we will have cures uh, for these illnesses as well. So this is something that we should definitely keep in mind. There's no such thing, although it might seem like it uh, in this uh, current day and age, because obviously we do not have the cures for every single illness at the moment, but there definitely will come a time when we do uh, have cures for for all the illnesses. Um, And it's just a matter of 
uh, more and more research, more and more understanding um, uh, and uh, scientific advancement as well. Um, <clears throat> in chapter 26, verse 81, Allah has promised in the Holy Quran that, um, and when I am ill, it is He who restores me to health. That is, every illness, <clears throat> every illness can be ultimately cured uh, only by Allah the Almighty. Um, and that is why he is also uh, uh, referred to as a shafi. This is one of his many attributes, which uh, translates as the curer um, or the healer as well. Um, with the recent advancement of technology and medicine, it has become quite easy to forget that the cures and remedies which uh, humans have been able to discover are only due to the blessings bestowed upon us by uh, by God Almighty. Uh, the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is reported to have uh, said to a physician, you are only a soother to your patient. Its physician is he who has created him, i.e., of course, referring to Allah the Almighty. Um, we'll continue on with, uh, with what Islam teaches uh, in regards to this in just a short while. Uh, but Bashir, I, I believe we have our first guest on with us. Uh, yes, uh, we have been joined by our first guest in a uh, Paula Barbarino. Um, uh, Paula leads on all aspects of uh, ADI's work. Uh, together with the board, uh, Paula ensures our strategy is implemented and uh, resourced. Paula is ADI's main spokesperson and uh, represents the organization internationally. And um, uh, Paula, uh, uh, Paolo, sorry. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you on today. Um, we are talking about uh, common viruses uh, could trigger Alzheimer's disease. And uh, obviously, as the expert, we would like to ask you um, uh, on this topic. But uh, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, it's an interesting topic. I hope we can have a good conversation about it. Uh, of course. Um, and. Uh, could you please begin by briefly explaining the work of your organization, uh, Alzheimer's Disease International, also known as ADI? Uh, thank you so much. ADI was founded in 1984 because at the time the stigma around dementia and Alzheimer's was so high that there was no coordination at international level. And every disease group needs to be represented at the WHO, at the UN and at other fora like the G20. Um, so we have been working for about 40 years and we represent 105 members organization in uh, as many countries. Um, and we also develop uh, the capacity uh, of countries to have uh, organizations that help people living with dementia and their families. Our overall um, if you wish, philosophy is that we need to look after the care of people whilst we are waiting for a cure. So it's not good enough just to wait for a cure. We have to do something now because families uh, need help. Um, we also, every year, and I hope some of your listeners will be interested, develop World Alzheimer's Month and World Alzheimer's Day, where people do a lot of wonderful activities to help each other, to grow communities' awareness of Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Um, and we also publish a very important report called the World Alzheimer's Report that gives all the facts and figures about how many people live with dementia. Sadly, 
Right now, there's about 55 million people that are estimated to live with dementia worldwide. And only about a fifth of those are actually diagnosed. So there is still a lot of uh, ignorance, unfortunately, about the disease. And about 62% of medical professionals still um, think it's due to normal aging rather than a disease. But dementia, Alzheimer's, unfortunately, are diseases. And, you know, you mentioned uh, quite an outstanding fi- uh, figure there, uh, 55 million uh, people who have uh, dementia. So I- I'd like to ask with regard to that, what sort of support um, do people suffering with uh, dementia need? You know, we've looked at some of the symptoms and um, there seem to be quite a few. So Yes, um, so there are a lot of symptoms and, as you know, unfortunately, COVID-19 has uh, probably opened a new path for having dementia, which is incredibly sad. Mm. Um, there are a lot of symptoms, unfortunately. The uh, Generally, a sense of loss of memory, a sense of loss of spatial awareness, uh, sometimes involuntary um, phenomenon, like, for example, developing any capacity to read, um, can be symptoms of dementia. Um, in many cases, if people are um, reaching a, a good old age, which we all wish to have, mm. um, it's um, uh, the case that doctors dismiss it as um, you know, symptoms of old age. But the reality is that it can be the disease. It can also be old age. Um, but it's important to seek a diagnosis and to have certainty. So the family knows the kind of support they can give, and there is a lot. So at the moment, um, there's been a lot of studying, for example, about keeping the people at home um, for longer. So in certain countries, in certain cultures, um, I was reading a very interesting report from the Middle East, for example, at the weekend, uh, where there is a, a, um, a sense of bringing people to hospital. But sometimes the best thing to do is for people to be at home in the love and affection of their home. But care has to be provided appropriately. And so training on care, understanding what's the best way uh, to uh, deal with a relative, with a loved one that has the disease, is the best way. And there is a lot of information around that people can have. A lot of it, of course, on ADI, on website. We are at www.alzint.org. But we also represent organizations in every country. And your listeners can find on our website the right organization in their country. In the UK, for example, is the Alzheimer's Society. And just, uh, you know, uh, going back to what you said about you know, COVID-19, you know, what what has been the link between um, the effect of COVID-19 um, during the pandemic um, on those living with dementia? So the effect has actually been uh, shockingly uh, bad, unfortunately. Mm. So we uh, pressed some governments, uh, indeed all governments through the WHO, but uh, some governments in particular to release the figures of how many people with dementia, um, how many people dying of COVID-19 had dementia during the peak of the pandemic. And unfortunately, in Australia, it was 41% of all people who died of COVID-19 had dementia. 
in the United Kingdom, 25 to 33%. And you know that there is a big inquiry about what's happening in long-term care homes. In some regions of Italy, it was 20%. In Canada, 36%. So the figures, unfortunately, are extremely high. And this, in part, relates to the fact that in the first stages of the pandemic, um, there were mistakes made, like in the case of England, to release patients back into care homes that had COVID-19. And we actually knew that this could happen. We had seen it happen in China, in Italy, in Spain. So where we could, we tried to raise this issue. But um, unfortunately, a lot of governments did not quite understand how serious it was until it was uh, too late. And as ever, you know, one has to say, you're looking at some of the most vulnerable and fragile people in society. And uh, often because of the fact that they are so vulnerable and fragile, they are less talked about when something like this crisis happens. And this is why now we are um, having a number of um, study groups on a number of issues uh, relating to the pandemic because we don't want governments to forget uh, that it's important to consider uh, the needs of people that have dementia all over the world. Sometimes, you know, they are in situations like wars or natural disasters, and there is always a, 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 a current of forgetting about the people that need help the most. That was, uh, um, you know, so shocking to hear. Those figures are so high. Um, and, you know, it, it really begs the question as to uh, why that is. You know, you gave some uh, reasons there, but is it uh, some sort of a, perhaps an immune resp- uh, uh, immune I- issue as well? That, no. Dunque, there are... Uh, no, you have to consider that people that live with dementia that are in care home setting usually have something that is called a comorbidity. Mm. So they will have other conditions. They may, the, the, the classic age at which you develop dementia is 65 years old mm. onward. And so you may have other conditions coming on top of what is already there. So you already have a vulnerable body that mm. also has dementia and, you know, it, cannot necessarily look after themselves and therefore cannot necessarily distance, for example. Mm. Um, In the case of the long-term care settings, obviously you had concentration of people in one place. And this is why this spread as wildfire, you know, was particularly bad. But now we are concerned with something slightly different. Um, So during the the second and third phases of the pandemic, our um, meteorologists that are part of our network started noticing more people coming in um, when they started seeking diagnosis at a younger age. um, And they were being diagnosed with Alzheimer's, who had had COVID. So the, the, the kind of background motif uh, to all these people arriving to seek a diagnosis seem to be uh, having developed COVID-19. And COVID-19, some of the symptoms, especially at the beginning, were neurological symptoms. So the loss of the sense of smell or of taste, for example, is a neurological symptom. So um, when faced by this increase in people seeking diagnosis at a younger age, so younger than 65, um, they started looking at whether COVID-19 may have a, 
uh, a correlation. And unfortunately, last year, um, it was uh, effectively um, evident that there may have been a correlation and COVID-19 may have broken the brain um, blood barrier and somehow, um, again, you know, perhaps triggered the things that uh, weren't there or made faster processes that were already present in the brain, therefore unchaining uh, you know, more diagnosis. So at the moment, ADI, as um, I said at the beginning, we, we have a lot of numbers on prevalence and incidence globally. So we are pretty sure that there will have been, in a way, a, a loss of incidence because um, uh, a lot of people died during the pandemic who had dementia, but unfortunately it looks like a lot more people may end up being diagnosed with dementia as a consequence of COVID-19. We have a, an international working group looking at these and so have another two or three organizations with which we are working. Once again, a lot of it is about going to governments and making sure that governments realize that they cannot uh, put uh, back dealing with dementia. You know, a lot of governments still deny that they either have dementia in their country, which is absolutely impossible. Mm. Uh, that is because of stigma. Mm. Paula, it's, it's been a, an absolute pleasure to have you on today, a very informative um, and intriguing discussion uh, just there. And, you know, you just told us so much about uh, Alzheimer's and, you know, what can be uh, what the situation really is and putting it into perspective. So thank you so much for joining us and uh, we hope to see you again uh, at another show. Thank you so much for inviting me. Maybe I can come and speak about the next World Alzheimer's Report, which is about how do you support people after a diagnosis. Uh, thank you. Have a lovely day, you all. Thank you so much. That was Paula uh, Barbarina, um, who uh, leads on all aspects of ADI's work. ADI being... Um, the Alzheimer's Disease International. Uh, but we move on from one guest straight to the other. We have on uh, with us on the line uh, Ruth uh, Itzaki, who I mentioned earlier um, as we were talking about, um, you know, the cause and effect relationship between uh, viruses and Alzheimer's disease. Um, Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Welcome uh, to The Breakfast Show, Ruth. Thank you. Yes, I look forward to uh, trying to answer questions that you're asking. Of course. Um, Ruth originally graduated, just to give uh, um, your bio, uh, in physics a long time ago, but for the last 30 plus years uh, has been working as a molecular uh, neuro, uh, neurovirologist on the possible role of viruses in Alzheimer's disease. Um, yourself, you were one of the first to hypothesize a connection between the herpes virus and Alzheimer's disease. H how did you e even come about this discovery? Well, um, somebody, there were about three reasons why there should be um, a, a link between viruses or certain virus and the disease. Um, somebody pointed out in a publication in the 1980s that the effects of the virus um, in a very serious acute disease called herpes simplex encephalitis, which fortunately is very rare because it's very serious, uh, the changes in brain very closely resemble those that are seen 
in certain regions of the brain in Alzheimer's disease. And so the article wondered whether or not this virus might be acting in the disease. That's one reason. The other two reasons are firstly that the virus is very common. It's the so-called cold-sore virus, which I refer to as HSV1 for short, herpes simplex virus type 1, <coughs> which causes cold sores among, in some people who are infected. Um, it's very common, and of course, unfortunately, Alzheimer's disease is common as well. So it does uh, fit that requirement of being a common factor. And another uh, point that makes it a possible cause is the fact that it can, once infected, it stays in the person's body for life, usually doing, as far as we know, no harm. But in older age, it does seem to come to life in some people and cause damage. Um, so the requirement has to be for something which stays around in the body for a long time, but shows really in old age, which, of course, is when most people develop Alzheimer's disease. So those are the three reasons that were given and we decided to look by a very sensitive technique in post-mortem specimens of brain from Alzheimer's disease and um, aged normal people and we detected the virus there in quite a high proportion of people um, in the brain so this doesn't of course prove that it's doing anything there but our subsequent work suggested that indeed it is proving of course is very hard um, and that hasn't been done quite definitively but uh, we at least showed that the virus was present in brain and it did cause quite a lot of effects which resemble those seen in Alzheimer's disease. So I hope that's an adequate answer for your question. Uh, it's uh, more than adequate, um, but you're also directly involved in the production of uh, the new report, Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. Uh, could you please briefly explain the contents of this study? Yes, I'll try, certainly. Um, well, there, uh, a, few, a couple of years ago, um, the group in Tufts University set up a, a so-called brain model, which um, brain cells in culture and like in a 3D sort of setup. And um, they tried the effects of herpes simply HSV1 on this model, and lo and behold, it caused changes very similar to those seen in the living brain, which was very exciting for people like me who... Um, uh, put forward the idea that uh, this virus could be involved because it, it supports it very strongly. Again, it doesn't approve, but it's a very strong support. And anyway, that was one um, uh, why we used that uh, setup. Um, the other thing was that we'd found that uh, well, there's some evidence that shingles might uh, be a risk for Alzheimer's disease. Shingles is caused by another herpes-type virus called varicella zoster virus, very long <laughs> words, so I call it VZV. So we thought we'd look into this, and what we did was infect the, um, this model brain with VZV and see whether it caused any changes of an Alzheimer's disease type. We found it caused some changes, but it didn't cause the main changes. Changes. So in that respect, it was unlike HSV1. But then we tried something else which gave very exciting results. Um, our idea that the virus actually acts in brain is based on the, like, uh, the fact that in most cases it lies, as I said, around in the body in the, various, in, in the brain and other places in older people. Um, not probably doing anything very much. It's what's called latent, dormant virus. But under certain circumstances, when the person is stressed or immunosuppressed or um, is suffering perhaps from some illness, uh, it can get reactivated and it then acts causing damage in the brain cells. So what we tried was we, uh, there's a sort of model for forming a latent type uh, 
they managed to, to get a latent type herpes infection in the brain cells, so it seemed to be doing very little or nothing. And then they added this other virus, the shingles virus, VZV, and lo and behold, it caused reactivation of the herpes virus, which was really very exciting because it suggests that might be what happens in life. So to cut a very long story short, what we showed was, I said, that VZV causes this reactivation of dormant virus in the model brain. And we suggest that um, probably in the brain infections cause a similar effect. And I should say now there are two reasons why we said that. Firstly, um, it's known now that infectious diseases increase the risk of Alzheimer's disease. And secondly, it's known that vaccination against uh, shingles, this is something I was involved in this, uh, in another article, vaccination against shingles decreases the risk which makes very good sense because if you're preventing an infection, then you're reducing the chances of that infection will, um, if you're uh, reducing the chances that, say, uh, if the person has shingles, they either have it more mildly or perhaps not have it at all. Therefore, you're re re reducing the risk of, of Alzheimer's disease. So um, all these things added together suggest that, firstly, infections, as other people have shown, increase the infectious diseases increase the risk of Alzheimer's disease. And secondly, the vaccination, at least against some diseases, maybe many infectious diseases, reduce that risk. So uh, I'm sorry, that's rather complicated, but the, the basic ideas of the two I've just said, infections, the infectious diseases can increase the risk of Alzheimer's disease, and vaccination against at least some of them reduces that risk. You know, that's uh, so interesting to hear about. Um, Ruth, we do have one more question for you, but we are fast approaching the 8 o'clock news. So if I could um, uh, kindly ask you to just stay on hold for uh, a few minutes and uh, we will uh, continue uh, the interview uh, uh, shortly. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Uh, welcome back to The Breakfast Show. Just before the break, uh, uh, we were talking with uh, Ruth uh, Itzaki about common viruses and how they could trigger Alzheimer's disease. We still have uh, Ruth on the line with us. And, you know, after your uh, s such an interesting, uh, well, many interesting points you made, I'd like to ask the question, what is the significance of this uh, new discovery and how could how could it potentially help to prevent Alzheimer's in the future? Well, I think the significance is that um, one, if infections can be prevented or avoided, obviously they can't totally be mm -hmm. so, but um, vaccinations should be taken up whenever they're offered. I think it's terribly important, and not just for the present COVID situation, but in general, because it seems that Certain, certainly for some diseases, I mean, they haven't tried all, these haven't been looked at, but for some at least it does reduce the risk of Alzheimer's disease. Um, so from that point of view, um, the other point of view, of course, it's pointing to a cause of the disease. 
um, uh, it's almost certainly Alzheimer's disease is multifactorial. In other words, there are probably several, at least a number of causes of which we don't know any of the others. So this is perhaps the first cause which is getting more and more strongly implicated. As I said, it's extremely hard to prove cause and effect in humans because you can't have experimental humans who, whom you infect with the disease. So, you know, that's really the ultimate proof, but uh, you can't do that. It's totally non-ethical. So, um, anyway, I think it really points to the way the future work and hopefully um, to finding other causes and then looking at their prevention. And, you know, do you think, um, just as a sort of a, a last musing, if you like, is is the future then uh, of uh, Alzheimer's, perhaps the future of the research of Alzheimer's, uh, would it be tailored to finding a more specific, uh, creating a more specific vaccine uh, completely tailored towards Alzheimer's? Well, there won't be one vaccine, I think, because if there are several causes of which some might not be anything to do with infectious diseases, you're not going to be able to um, prevent all of those, almost certainly. I mean, there could be environmental things, for example, air pollution. I'm not saying it is by any means, but say it were, that's going to be not prevented by vaccination, but might prevented by cleaning the air. Um, so the answer is not vaccination in all cases, but certainly in the case of infectious diseases, it's likely to be. So I think that would have probably reduced the number of cases in future when, if and when a vaccine is found. Unfortunately, at present, there's no vaccine against mm. HSV-1. There is, as I said, against shingles. So uh, we can ha- stop one disease to some extent or reduce it, but not the other so far, not, not herpes infect- effects. Um, Ruth, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on today. Um, you know, such an insightful uh, conversation. And uh, we hope to see you again on another show at another time. Okay, thanks very much for inviting me, and I hope I wasn't too complicated in my explanations. Thanks again. Bye. Uh, (laughs) Goodbye. That was uh, Ruth, who originally graduated in physics a long time ago, but for the last 30-plus years has been working as a molecular neurovirologist on the possible role of viruses in the Alzheimer's disease. Um, You know, that does conclude that part of... um, the show where we, um, or of this segment where we talk to our guests, um, you know, there was a little bit on the Islamic perspective we uh, still had yet to cover. Uh, Brother Summer, would you kindly continue with it? Yeah, no, no, sure. Um, uh, as we were uh, discussing beforehand as well, before speaking to our esteemed guests, uh, we were speaking about uh, how every single disease, every single illness has a cure, and this is what Islam teaches. Uh, it's just a matter of us catching up. Um, with our with the scientific advancements and other such things, so that we can understand these things better um, and cure these things in a far better way as well. Uh, we also spoke about how uh, when when we do receive medicine or when we when we go to the doctors or physicians, they they're just soothers for the patient. But rather, uh, if we ever do get cured, then that is because of uh, Allah the Almighty. Um, Allah, the Ashafi, which is uh, the attribute of him being the healer. Um, in a Friday sermon on the 19th of December 2008, His Holiness, may Allah be his helper, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he said that in certain conditions, people afflicted with certain illnesses seek adequate medical uh, care at advanced facilities in developed countries. Uh, yet they may uh, or may not recover. Similarly, 
in underdeveloped countries, many people afflicted with illnesses do not have the facilities or the resources to seek medical help. Yet they recover as though miraculously through the power of prayers of their elders and their loved ones. Um, this, of course, proves that it is indeed God, the healer, who has the power to grant health and healing. And a believer has firm faith on this attribute of Allah. Allah uh, provides healing not only to human beings, but to his entire creation, including, of course, animals as well as plants as well. So, I mean, it just goes to show, isn't it, Bashir, that whenever there is such a, 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 a problem that we that has been inflicted upon us, any illness, any disease, anything, um, then we should always turn to Allah the Almighty. And um, the, I, the promised Messiah upon whom be peace as well, he's mentioned on, on, on many occasions that uh, if whenever such something happens, then of course there's the physical remedy and then the spiritual remedy as well. And we should make use and make proper use of both things. It is not to say that we only uh, rely on God Almighty and uh, and, uh, and, uh, and pray to Him and not take any physical uh, steps to try and uh, aid us or try to heal us uh, ourselves. Um, and at the same time, it doesn't mean that we only go to the doctors or to, to the physicians and receive remedy or medicines and herbs, etc., from them and not rely, not uh, pray to God Almighty. Um, so there, there needs to be that balance, uh, and this is what Allah the Almighty has taught us. Um, and of course, this is what we should remember for, for this segment, uh, which has now come to an end as well. And yeah, we will carry this uh, notion uh, further of healing um, um, from an Isl- Islamic perspective, because our our um, second segment, you know, will touch upon this as well, because we're looking at the link between frequent naps and high blood pressure. Um so the gist of the story is that a frequent or usual daytime napping in adults was associated with a 12% higher risk of developing high blood pressure and a 24% higher risk of having a stroke compared to never napping. Experts say napping, although not unhealthy, may be a sign of poor sleep quality. Um, you know, so it's um it's quite an interesting um, uh, notion um, that is being given to us um that frequent or usual daytime napping in adults has been associated with 12% higher risk of developing high blood pressure. Um, but experts have said that napping, um, because of this napping, which leads to uh, poor sleep quality, um, there's also a higher percentage of frequent nappers who were men who had uh, lower education and income uh, levels and reported cigarette smoking, daily drinking, insomnia, snoring and being an evening person compared to people who reported napping uh, sometimes uh, uh, or or never. Um, So uh, just uh, from saying that, there's uh, been a couple of sort of uh, other factors that have been mentioned as well such as you know smoking as well or lower education things like this so um as we were talking with our last guest this this applies here as well it could be a multifaceted um uh, issue but the mendelian uh, randomization result shows that if napping frequency increased by one category from never to sometimes or sometimes to usually high blood pressure risk increased by 40% um, a reason this is also perhaps a slightly difficult study to um, 
to look at because it's um, um, it's using a scale which is not not very uh, it's not factual but uh, opinionated. So from never to sometimes sometimes is a can be a very broad uh, thing. So for uh, some people it may mean um, you know uh, napping maybe once a day for. Um, you know, someone else that sometimes might mean once a week. So it it's, it is quite hard to say, um, but um, I'm sure there are um, studies which go into the detail, go into the fact uh, more and scrutinize it. Um, but to look at uh, the findings uh, of uh, the study as well, we will be, uh, we will actually delay this and talk to our, our our guests first um, um, and we have been joined uh, I do believe by Professor Christian Benedict and we will um, be talking to him on this topic the link between frequent naps and high blood pressure but to introduce him Benedict is an associate professor in pharmacology he's published 160 scientific articles his group studies the health consequences of sleep and circadian disruption assalamu alaikum peace be upon you and welcome to the breakfast show professor christian yeah good morning um so as as uh, stated before we are talking about the link between frequent naps and high blood pressure so mm-hmm. to what extent do you agree that um or disagree that there is a link between napping and high blood pressure I can agree, disagree, right? Because mm. the study reveals this, that those reporting frequent napping or naps in the UK biobank had an increased risk to suffer from hypertension or to develop hypertension or even to develop a stroke, right? Mm. But the question is, you know, is napping a causal factor? And that is a very important question, yes, because Overall, I would say everyone who prioritizes sleep is doing something that is, is good, right? Mm. And health-promoting. Because sleep is known to promote many, many biological processes that support health and recovery. But nonetheless, you know, they found this. And then you should um, ask yourself, why do these people um, exhibit frequent napping and behavior? And one explanation could be that these people may have and yeah, or that their nighttime sleep is not of so high quality that they have to compensate for this by having frequent naps during daytime. Hmm. But in their analysis, they also tried to control for this and considered the overall of the 24 hour sleep duration, the habitual, and still found that the association was there. But it's not like an optimal measure just to ask someone how long do you habitually sleep because how long you believe you sleep and how long you actually sleep, there can be, you know, a considerable difference or discrepancy between these two measures. But anyhow, another thing that can lead to frequent napping is that you're just sick, right? If you're Mm. sick, you have some diseases like metabolic diseases like obesity, type 2 diabetes, or other conditions, or you're on your way to develop these uh, disease conditions, your body um, has to, you know, pull all available registers to fight this disease, you know, to curb the disease progression. 
And one weapon that the body has is sleep, right? Because again, I said this initially, sleep promotes health and recovery. So one idea is if you are sick, of course, your body might be inclined to sleep more and also, you know, to support nap, napping behavior, right? Because it may help you to fight the disease or the development of a disease, but it may not work out um, to the yeah to the full extent and you nonetheless in the very long run develop this so to summarize this i think i it's a little bit a little bit questionable yes that naps causally contribute to an increased risk to develop hypertension in the long run but they may be like a cue and behavioral cue for something else that may be wrong about your nighttime sleep or something else is ongoing in your body, like, an, as I said, a disease that may develop over time, which requires your body to rest more and to have more recovery periods to fight, um, yeah, to, 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 yeah, just to fight this disease. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, does uh, taking naps, therefore, uh, during the day, um, you know, interrupt our circadian rhythm? And if so, mm-hmm. does that have an effect as well? You know, we have to be careful because if you think about 24 hours, of course, the night represents a period of the day or time of the day where sleep propensity is very high. You know, the body and the circadian rhythms in your body that dictate when or which biological process should take place during which time of the day, they dictate our body during the night. You know, it's optimal to sleep. But there's another um, dip in alertness and which actually increases our sleep propensity that it takes place between 1 to 3 p.m. every day. Yes. And based on this, it might be even natural that we, you know, rest during this time and that we may have like a short nap. But I don't believe that a nap on its own will mess up the function of your circadian ribbons unless it is very long. Because if, if you have this very long, it may have then also an impact on the subsequent night and your ability to fall asleep, which is really simple, right? Because if you nap and you sleep long during the day, you reduce sleep pressure. And as such, you will enter the following night, the subsequent night, with less sleep pressure. And if you have less sleep pressure, you cannot fall asleep as quickly as you want, yes. Oh. So there are pros and cons with these um, nets, but I would not say that a nap, as long as it is not too long, would interfere with your circadian rhythms. But if it gets too long, then there might be a problem in relation to the next night's sleep, yes, because you don't enter the next night with sufficient sleep pressure, which yeah makes it more difficult to fall asleep. And I think the appropriate follow-up to that question then is um, mm-hmm. what, um, how how is it best to take a nap then? How long should it be? Mm, that, that's a very good question. And, you know, I I would say, of course, you could say mm, approximately 15, 20 minutes, not mm. longer. Why this? Because if you sleep for too long during the day, you may enter then also slow wave sleep. This, it's also called deep sleep. Mm. And, you know, it's a very different state brain state compared to wakefulness and when you wake up from this um, from um, slow wave sleep or deep sleep you also ex- um, experience something called sleep inertia so you feel really crocky and not recovered at all 
And the other problem is, of course, when you start to sleep too long during the day and you enter the slow wave sleep, the slow wave sleep is the currency that you use to reduce your sleep pressure. And if you have too much slow wave sleep during the day, you will have less sleep pressure the subsequent evening. And as I already mentioned, you will struggle more with falling asleep. Yes. So I would say 15 to 20 minutes. But, you know, I also want to emphasize, you know, napping is, of course, a nice thing to, for instance, boost your cognitive function. There has been a new meta-analysis where they systematically went through all studies and have found, yes, it boosts your cognitive function. So, it's, you know, it's good if you are a high performer to have a short nap to boost your performance afterwards, your cognitive performance. There are also studies to suggest that a short nap can help you if you haven't slept enough to reduce inflammation markers in blood. So you see there are a lot of um, benefits when it comes to these naps, but they should not be too long. This is, so to speak, the bottom line. And on top of that, you should not turn naps into like an kind of, you know, that it's, it's, you are forced to sleep, even if you rest, if you take just a mental break for 15, 20 minutes, even if you do not succeed falling asleep, it's still a break that, that you have and that helps you to recover mentally to some extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, Professor Christian, it's been, um, you know, so interesting to talk about this and, uh, you know, to learn what, uh, you know, how to take a nap properly. Um, but, Thank you so much for joining us on today's show and we hope to see you again uh, at another time. Yeah, thank you very much. May the sleep be with you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Uh, That was Professor Christian Benedict, uh, who is an associate professor in pharmacology. He has published 160 scientific articles. His group studies uh, the health consequences of sleep and circadian uh, disruption and uh, a cheeky little Star Wars reference there at the end as well. Um, but, um, you know, going back to, um, we were summarizing the study um, beforehand, um, and um, to mention uh, where this study came from, it was from sciencedaily.com. Um, and so if you are interested in the subject, feel free to have a look at that article uh, on the um which is on the link between frequent naps and high blood pressure. But researchers in China examined whether frequent naps could be a potential risk factor for high blood pressure and uh, stroke as well. This is the first study to use uh, both uh, observational analysis of participants over a long period of time and Mendeleyan randomization, genetic risk validation, to investigate whether frequent napping was associated with high blood pressure and is ischemic stroke. Um, But uh, we have been joined by our next guest on the the segment as well. On this topic, we are talking about the link between frequent naps and high blood pressure. Uh, And it is my pleasure to welcome onto the show uh, Salma uh, Sultana Khan. Um, Ms. Salma, uh, uh, who is the founder of Zingtality, a nutrition consultancy, and of online health uh, shop is with us now. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to the breakfast show. Walaikum salam. Walaikum salam. Um, so, just to start things off, what are some common signs of hypertension? Some common signs would be um, developing a nausea, having a headache, 
heart palpitations, um, fati- fatigue, or even a blurry or double vision, shortness of breath, chest pain. So um, these are some of the common symptoms and signs. And, you know, uh, insomnia is uh, also a cause um, of hypertension as well. Um, but what what are some measures that can be taken to prevent this? Avoiding and um, or just limiting caffeine and also nicotine intake, anything that is a stimulant, especially after 2 p.m. in the afternoon, um, and also avoiding larger meals or drinking too many beverages um, too close to bedtime. Otherwise, that might be uncomfortable. Then you'd have to get up and your sleep would be disturbed and uh, hence result in insomnia. Um, and then also avoiding um, the ice. You're, you're using your phone at night, um, computer, iPad, and just to reduce that white light uh, prior to going to sleep. Um, also, um, sometimes certain medications uh, prevent a person from going to sleep at night as well. So um, it might be a good idea to check your medications as well if somebody's on medications and then discuss that with the doctor um, to maybe change the medications if possible, if they are a factor in the insomnia or may possibly lead to insomnia. And, you know, we um, essentially this topic, um, it seems like there's two schools of thoughts. So there's a, um, there's a, the thought um, that perhaps, uh, you know, um, you know, hypertension is uh, perhaps. Uh, let let me say this in this way: there's some uh, contradictory evidence, um, you know, which states daytime naps can lower um, stroke risks and even improve memory. Um, you know, but on the other side, we're looking at how it can cause high blood pressure. So, where does where does it actually lie? What's your opinion on this? Well, um, as far as the research that I've looked at, um, taking short naps um, during the afternoon time, um, they, ca- they, they can actually, in fact, be beneficial because they promote re- relaxation, they reduce fatigue, and they in- increase alertness. Um, so it really depends what the person has been doing during the day. Um, they might have been physically active, um, exercising, or just m- mentally active. They're- depending on the work that they do. Um, So it can actually be beneficial. And in the actual study that um, took a look at the naps, in that um, a lot of the participants actually smoked and they, you know, drank alcohol and they they snored at night and they actually suffered from insomnia anyway. So um, I think that the research isn't actually that conclusive and more studies need to be... um, like uh, carried out. Um, so actually, in fact, uh, my own opinion is that um, as long as somebody does get a good night's sleep at night, um, they may require a very short nap, maybe, you know, 20 minutes, and that actually can be quite refreshing. So um, I think that the study that was carried out, um, if they are, you know, stating that naps lead to um uh, hypertension, then I think they need to look at a wider range of participants rather than only concentrating on the participants who already had existing issues. And um, 
just lastly, um, to talk about, um, uh, you know, Zengtality uh, Nutrition Consultancy and Online Health Shop. Um, is there is there any products or anything like that, or any advice um, from that side of things, which um, um, essentially can um, be presented to uh, our listeners? Um, well, um, in ter- you mean in terms of um, hypertension? Oh, yeah, or just um, just just anything that would be good for insomnia or anything like that. Okay. Um, well, I do have a sleep formula up there, but it's a very mild sleep formula mm. on the website. Um, but apart from that, if somebody's looking for a sleep formula or something to just help them unwind at night, um, there's lots of various herbal teas available that contain, for example, chamomile. Um, and also, I would suggest avoiding highly sugary foods mm. uh, to, in the evening as well to prevent, um, you know, a blood sugar rush um, and um, I mean sometimes insomnia is so severe if somebody actually is has been suffering from it for a long time a person can uh, take some medication um, which is not so strong from the doctor they can be prescribed it for example melatonin but otherwise there are natural forms of melatonin available for example um, there's been research around tart montmorency cherries which have helped to um, a person fall asleep for longer faster so um, these kinds of juices are available in the concentrated form in various health shops so um, people can experiment i think with these kinds of natural things as well mm. which I, I think it's best to go down the natural line first of all um so I think that would be useful. And also, there's been some research around uh, ashwagandha, which is a herb, um, and that's also helped a person go to sleep. Help, um, because um, what ashwagandha does, it, it minimizes uh, cortisol, which is a stress hormone in the body. So if a person's body is highly stressed before going to sleep at night, then that might prevent them from going to sleep as well. So um, it just depends on the actual individual as well. And would all these um, sort of natural, um, you know, remedies be available at your online shop as well? Um, there is a there is a, um, a a sleep formula that I have. Mm. Um, it's a very mild one, but um, for people who are looking for something a little bit stronger, um, maybe they can walk into a good quality health shop um, and uh, take a look in there because there's a lot of there's a wide variety that we have now and mm. it, depending on each person's individual needs um thank you so much for uh you know coming on today's show and you know telling us uh, about hypertension um you know and how how it can be prevented essentially and also um you know discussing all these herbal remedies as well so thank you so much uh, um uh, miss selma for coming on to today's show and uh, we wish you the very best oh you're most welcome thank you for having thank me so on much. that was uh, Miss uh, Salma Sultana Khan who is the founder of Zingtality a nutrition consultancy and online health shop um, that does bring us to the end uh, of the guests for this segment um, the segment being the link between frequent naps and high blood pressure we do have um uh, an interesting um, clip to play uh, in which uh, um, uh, the clip 
uh, being uh, a brief uh, question and answer session with the fourth Halif um, of uh, the Ahliya Muslim community, uh, Hazrat uh, 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 Mirza Tahir Ahmed, uh, may Allah have mercy on him. And we will, um, and he is discussing if a person can remember Allah while sleeping. So here is the clip to that. Sleep has a similarity to death. When your consciousness sinks into unconsciousness, and the death is the name of ultimate unconsciousness from which you can not return. So scientifically it has been examined how the sleep processes take place in humans. The conscious level of consciousness begins to sink. And at a certain point, whatever happens during that period is completely unknown to man. Because the human consciousness that is soul has gone down beneath a certain level of human awareness has gone down to that level where from where we cannot retrieve anything of the experience of that consciousness. The psychologist wave it off by de- calling it subconsciousness. But what is subconsciousness? It is in fact the sinking of the soul to low levels of mind. At at every such lower level, the soul searches around that part of the mind and knows what it is. And it goes on traveling downwards and downwards until if not retrieved and kicked back to its original level of consciousness, it would sink into nothingness, that is death. So this process of saving the soul from return to God, ultimately from where it will not be retrievable by the living person, Allah has created a, a scientific methodology which takes sure, makes it sure that the soul does return to its conscious level of life. So exactly at the same intervals, the soul, while it's sinking down and down and down, is somehow kicked back to its upper conscious level. When it reaches that, whatever dreams it sees, they are remembered. Because the dreams which it sees in during the subconscious level cannot be remembered by it at the level of the consciousness. They remain sunk in the low levels. The only dreams which the soul remembers is remembers to recount while it returns to the awakening periods are those dreams which are seen at the level of this return to just the level of consciousness. This is called 
by scientists as rapid eye movement phase. At exactly the right moment, at exactly in this, uh, the major time, the soul returns to the consciousness and the scientists register it as a period of rapid eye movement. Because eyes start moving right and left at that time and they can be seen moving or oscillating from, uh, from behind the eyelids. Because eyelids show their passing from one to motion to the other. If you awaken any person at that stage, he will most certainly remember the dreams it was saying. If you do not awaken him at that moment, then the soul may return to the lower levels once again. And during that process, it may forget what it had seen during the period of rapid eye movements. You understand the point? So it's a very complicated affair, but one thing is certain, it is scientific. It is well organized. And sleep is another name for death. It is only Allah who saves us from ultimate death by creating this process of returning of the soul whenever it reaches the last dangerous level of, you know, turning into death. That was a brief audio clip um, speaking on the subject of um, uh, the link between sleep and death as we were looking at um, sort of uh, napping and is that good or bad for you? Um, but uh, we will be uh, moving on uh, swiftly to our third segment, which is the impact of a lack of care for climate change. Um, so in this uh, segment, we'll discover why it's so hard for us to get our heads around climate change uh, with a surprising list uh, of reasons. Almost half of Europe is living with a drought warning. The climate crisis is right upon us, yet many of us still do not see it. Uh, a recent poll found 70% of uh, uh, Brits understood climate change was leading to Britain's extreme hot weather. However, 17% of the participants believe it was unrelated. Um, uh, this means more than 1 in 10 people do not realise or accept the heat waves are scientifically linked to global warming. Some have also said the heat wasn't any worse than in 1976, whilst uh, others accuse uh, media and scientists for having a, sl- a snowflake mentality uh to put it to put it uh, mildly um so you know um that is quite a interesting um figure to take note of um but i think it's to be expected isn't it you know you can't um have everyone on board uh with everything all the time um yeah and uh it's also perhaps why there's a uh, um you know there's an average iq rather than um all that all that um you know some people below some people above it but we will be explaining uh, why um you know how we can tackle these stories of action which will be much more beneficial than fear alone you know in the uk a huge jump in numbers was found from 23 percent uh in 2013 to 72 percent in 2019, people understood the risks associated with heat waves 
Um, flooding, heavy rain and coastal erosion still ranked higher in people's minds. Whereas we are catching up with head-driven uh, uh, by climate change uh, and we haven't with other impacts as well. People don't really mention droughts causing failure of crops, which is a big worry. Um, furthermore, people don't mention disease coming into the country as a result of rising temperatures, which is quite interesting to take note of. Um, um, you know, could we potentially one day, if uh, you know it does get hot enough, could we be seeing um, perhaps the rising rates of malaria in the UK or um, something like yellow fever or, or things which are typically in much hotter environments or um, uh, as the temperatures do rise. Um, but Brother Summer, what is your what is your take uh, on this initial part of the segment where, where we're just, you know, just looking at this um, um, climate change and sort of the rising heat waves um, and so on and so forth? I mean, I mean, it's uh, it's all about the mindset, isn't it? And uh, whereas, like, we are sort of catching up with uh, head driven uh, by, by by climate change, we we haven't um, with, with other impacts, isn't it? Um, and people don't really mention droughts causing failures of crops, which is sort of a big worry. Um, furthermore, people don't mention disease coming mm. into uh, into country as a result of rising temperatures. Like you mentioned, there can be uh, a, a possibility of such diseases coming in uh, to the country because of um, the rising temperatures. Um, however, uh, Dr. Chris Demeyer, uh, he explained uh, that uh, fear alone is not enough to get us to act. Um, and hearing stories of action is uh, what will help individuals. And, I mean, like you mentioned earlier as well, the snowflake man, uh, mentality. I mean, you, you often see people who uh, who believe uh, in, in such things, and you oftentimes you find people who don't believe in mm. such things. Um, but, of course, it is important for us to do our own research. Um, if you think that, oh, maybe it's just, um, because of what the media is portraying or because of what we're reading in the news or, or, or seeing on the television. Um, okay, that's fine. But do your own research if you don't believe in such things and, and come to realize um, for yourself that things are actually happening because of uh, our, our actions, isn't it? I mean, we've, we've, we always speak about here on the Voice of Islam radio station that we need to do whatever we can to better the situation for the for for the next generation, isn't it? We should leave the world in a better state in which we found it, um, and uh, this is something that we should all live by. Um, it's not about using up all of the resources and wasting resources, rather. Um, of course, we can use resources, and that is what they are meant to, to uh, meant for. But uh, it's not about wasting resources. Um, we, we see people with such high carbon footprints. I mean, you're going to some some place which is so uh, close to you, yet uh, people travel on helicopters and airplanes mm. and other private jets and things of that sort. Uh, of course, this is this isn't the way, um, and uh, we should be doing whatever we can to sort of uh, look after the environment rather than ruining it, isn't it? Yeah, that was uh, really wonderfully put, um, and um, also we will be now talking to 
an expert on this uh, subject, which is the impact of a lack of care for climate change, in uh, one Professor Colin Butler. Colin Butler is an honorary uh, professor of public health at the Australian National University in Canberra, uh, Australia. He has qualifications in medicine and epi- uh, epidemi- uh, uh, epidemiology. <laughs> um, I hope that I got that right. But, um, you know, um, assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, uh, Professor Colin. Um, uh, welcome to The Breakfast Show. Um, well, thank, thank you for the invitation. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, so just to start things off, um, as... As stated before, we are talking about the impact of a lack of care for climate change. So, you know, what are um, perhaps uh, a few things we can do to help reduce climate change impacts? Well, I think one thing um, which I guess your program is contributing to is to become better informed Mm. about the issue. For a long time, people in uh, high-income countries such as UK, US, Australia, I think have thought that Climate change is something that's a long way away and maybe will affect people in poor countries mostly, but not, not ourselves as well. But I think that's, that's increasingly questioned. You know, we, we're starting to see, you know, I've been following the news in Britain, your, your droughts and your heat waves and so on, and all the rivers in Europe drying up. We're starting to see issues in Europe and certainly in Australia and the fires in North America and so on. So I think one thing... The, the first thing we, we should do is become uh, better informed about uh, what climate change is. And um, I can go on. I mean, after you become better informed, I think if you're in a democracy, you can vote for people who can take action to slow climate change. If Even if you're not living in such a democracy, I'm sure that there are things that... Um, you know, community leaders uh, can, can do to, to try to encourage changes uh, in, in the communities in which, in which they live. And so they're sort of collective actions mm. and they're individual actions. And you, you know, want to ask me yeah. what, would you, what would you say is perhaps the, um, you know, it is hard to uh, quantify sometimes, but uh, what, what in your opinion is the biggest contributor to climate change and, and why? Well, it's to me, it's it's the burning of this invisible gas, carbon dioxide. Mm. You know, carbon dioxide, which of course in moderate doses is essential for plants, but in too much, it's a poison. And uh, one of the problems with it is that it's invisible; you can't taste it, smell it, or see it. But we we know from laboratory measures it's going up and up and up. And scientists have known since the middle of last of the 19th century, since the 1850s and so on, that that these gases act like a bit, a bit like a blanket around the earth, you know, or sometimes called the greenhouse, you know, warming the atmosphere. So people have warned about it for so long, but it's go, it's now going up at a very fast rate compared. You know, it came from the burning of coal mainly and other fossil fuels like oil and gas. But in the last 20 years. Um, the contribution from the burning of these things, I'm not certain exactly, but it, it might equal the previous 150 years. I mean, it's it's really going up very fast mm. at the moment. And, and so we're kind of choking in it because it, but it's because it's invisible. We can't, we can't, we're not really aware of it. Mm. And, you know, we were talking about those um, 
um, about people who are perhaps uh, 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 ill-informed about this subject and about perhaps people who, who don't necessarily care until it starts affecting them. So, you know, before perhaps um, uh, informing these people and um, for trying to stimulate um, a need uh, for caring about this, what what do you think needs to be done? Is, is the actions we're taking... Um, right now, in your opinion, are they, uh, you know, gonna take us? Are are there actions being done right now which are uh, leading us to solve climate change, which is obviously very hard to do, and the Earth naturally a cycles anyway? But uh, or is it um, just making a difference to perhaps uh, just uh, future generations instead of us right now? I think we can. I think there are some actions being done to uh, slow the rate of of climate change, but probably the the most benefit will, will be to the future. And this is this is of course another reason for delaying action. We think we can get away with mm. it. You know, we'll we'll post we'll go on that diet. We'll start tomorrow. And tomorrow we'll start the day after. We really need to start. You know, several decades mm. ago, but we can't do that. So the best thing is start as soon as we can. And there are, there are, of course, these technologies like like wind turbines and, and uh, um, solar solar electricity generation. They've been around for quite a while, but their, their price is is coming down, and mm. it is becoming um, feasible to imagine uh, a complete transition to a sort of carbon neutral world. But um, we really we do really need to uh, accelerate that. There's other things we can do too, such as reduce reducing. Um, Eating a more a more plant-based diet, uh, less meat, especially uh, uh, cows and mm. you know beef, because they emit methane. Methane is the second most important uh, of these invisible gases that that lead to climate change. Uh, and of course, um, you know the grazing of cattle takes up uh, takes up a lot of forest space, and there's a lot of deforestation that has to happen as well. Um, you know, are there any? Yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, go on. No, no. Well, I was going to say, apart from um, the burning of fossil fuels, I think deforestation is the second uh, most important mm. contributor to climate change. And, uh, you know, we have these standing forests, some of them en- enormous trees, even today being being cut down in, in places like, like Canada. Um, so we've really got to not just plant trees, but preserve the, the, tree, the trees we have. And, and yes, you've mentioned the deforestation to uh, to grow food um, some of that food is, is used to grow plants which are then then fed to animals so mm. we, we could we could definitely if we had a more plant-based diet we, we wouldn't have to have uh, as much deforestation but we're talking about um, enormous changes in, in our whole economy it's you know it is a big challenge and you know just talking about forests uh, do you think um, in the future with um, essentially uh, forest planting s- schemes and so on and so forth, but also um, a rising population and with limited land space. What what do you think will be um, the sort of balance between that? Because on the one hand, you want to have as many trees as possible. On the other hand, you want to have um, as much land space as possible. So mm. w- what's your opinion on that? Yeah, well, I don't know if you, lo- if you play chess, but sometimes mm. I feel like I'm Playing chess against a very good player, and you can see you can see checkmate coming, <laughs> because climate change, you know, it's it's already um, 
affecting crop crop growth. Uh, you know, we see it with the harvest in in Europe, and uh, India's just had terrible heat waves that reduced their uh, their wheat yield and so on. So there is this risk of um, the, the 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 crops in the world becoming less productive, and and therefore more pressure to uh, clear more forests and plant plant more uh, crops, and it and it just leads to a sort of uh, you know, a vicious circle, or, or, or to checkmate. So that that's that's very um, concerning. But you, you did mention the issue of population, and you know, of course, we do need to um, feed feed people. It's it's essential. But I think another factor for slow climate change is actually to consider having fewer children, especially in. Uh, in, in rich countries, because we, we, you know, I mean, I live in a rich country, and we consume so much as an individual, mm. and we, we need to think about the, not just the quantity of the number of people on the planet, but their quality of um, of, of life. Yeah, the, um, we definitely like, um, as you mentioned, um, you know, there are things like, such as uh, water usage. Um, um, there's various figures, if I remember correctly, that show how many liters of water we use per day for example in the shower or just drinking or you know even from our hose pipe which is the reason we've got a hose pipe ban in the uk right now um so we've talked about perhaps some of the human uh influences on on climate change but you know what what are the natural forces that can also uh explain to a degree the rise in uh global temperatures Oh, well, there are there are many um, natural factors that influence the climate, such as uh, you know sun sunspot activity and also the amount of uh, haze in the atmosphere. For example, a major major volcanic eruption like happened with Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines in 1991 led to a bit of um, global cooling. There is you know some skeptics have argued that. What we're seeing with uh, hotter, hotter temperatures and more rainfall is is purely natural, but that's really, um, you know, the vast majority. And I mean, at least 99% of climate scientists don't don't accept that. They say that these the increase in greenhouse gases is far more important uh, than those other factors. If you go over a very long time, uh, we know we we had an ice age 10,000 years ago, and we'll have another ice age. Sometime in the future, and that's 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 to do with complicated factors about the orbit around the sun, and and um, but that's act, uh, operating on a much uh, longer uh, time scale than than we're talking about. So I think the main driver at the moment is 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 this you know these human factors, the burning of uh, fossil fuels and the clearing of trees. But if I could, I'd like to mention there is one other possible natural factor that. That could increasingly play a role and work against us, mm. and that's that climate change, you know, from human causes can lead to what's called feedbacks that actually make it worse. So an, an obvious one to consider is the the number of the amount of fires in in um, Siberia. The last few years, every every year has been a really bad fire year because. All these trees are getting, you know, it's getting hotter and, and drier and, and they're burning and there aren't enough people to put the fires out. So that actually is increasing the, the greenhouse gases from that and people are concerned about um, release of carbon dioxide from uh, 
from also the Amazon forest and also and also the tundra and, the, and other other factors. So so that's another reason why I worry about checkmate. That even mm-hmm. even if you know we stop reduce we we would greatly reduce our burning of fossil fuel. These um, greenhouse gases, they're called methane and carbon dioxide from from the earth itself um could could compensate and and uh, add to it and what's called a some i usually call a positive feedback but it's actually not positive for humanity it's uh, it's harmful mm. professor colin it's been um you know wonderful uh, to have you on today's show and uh, I, I can say i've learned a lot and hopefully our listeners have as well so thank you so much for coming on today's show uh, I greatly appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was uh, Professor Colin Butler, uh, an honorary professor of public health at the Australian National University in Canberra, Australia. He has qualifications in medicine and uh, epidemiology. Um, Hopefully I got that one right this time. Um, We will be moving on to a very short um, um, interview we have as well. We're uh, in one uh, with David uh, Pogue. Um, um, and we will be quickly uh, listening to that now. That is a pre-record. So, Mr. Pogue, could you please briefly start off by explaining the work you do? Well, in the climate realm, I'm probably best known for writing a book called How to Prepare for Climate Change. It covers every aspect of things you can do now to be ready. So how to build, where to live, how to invest, how to insure how to talk to your children, what to grow in your garden, that kind of thing. Uh, my regular job is a science reporter for uh, an American TV show called CBS Sunday Morning. Interesting. So what do you think, what impact does the lack of care for climate change have? Well, there are huge strides forward, especially the American uh, bill that just passed that will commit billions and billions of dollars toward decarbonizing and electrifying the system. And I think that will send a signal out to the rest of the world. Uh, it's it's not enough and it's too late. So what what's already here is what's going to stay. We're never going to go back to the weather of the 80s. Um, so in our lifetimes and our children's lifetimes, we will not see any cooling off. But 93% of the heat is, is locked in the oceans, which take decades or lifetimes to to change temperature. So uh, all the signs that you see now, wildfires and heat waves and droughts, um, changing of of crop makeup, uh, human migration to more livable areas, all of that that you see now will will continue. Um, But at least we are finally starting to wake up to the problem. Yeah. So is there any advice that you would give to the public who are wanting to live more sustainably but are not exactly sure how? You will hear all kinds of advice. Uh, eat less red meat, uh, take public transportation, drive an electric car, um, you know, turn lights off when you leave a room, that kind of thing. But honestly, by far the biggest emitters of carbon gases are governments and corporations. So the single most important thing an individual can do is to vote, to talk, to campaign, to magnify your efforts to larger groups that will ultimately result in change of leadership 
in the corporations and the, the governments. So yes, you should eat less red meat. That's probably the number one thing you can do because uh, cows are a gigantic emitter of methane, which of course is 80 times worse than carbon dioxide. Um, if you want to make one change, that's it. But the, the bigger thing is to try to affect companies and governments. Perfect. Thank you so much for, you know, for contributing to, to the show. And it's great advice there. I hope our listeners can benefit from this. Thank you so much. Sure thing. Good luck. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. That was uh, uh, an, a brief interview with David Pogue, um, who is uh, the, who was the New uh, York Times Weekly uh, tech columnist from 2000 to 2013. He's a six-time Emmy winner for his stories on CBS Sunday Morning a New York Times best-selling author, five-time TED uh, speaker. And, you know, uh, that does bring us, sadly, to the end of today's show. Um, and, um, you know, I'd like to thank all the producers and the guests and the researchers. But from us in the studios, here is the 9 o'clock news. <laughs>